1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: Welcome to the Heritage Foundation for this panel on assessing the potential of the TRAP Act to prevent Interpol abuse. My name is Ted Bromond. I'm a senior research fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. The Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act of 2019, the TRAP Act, was introduced in the House and in the Senate in identical versions in September. The act makes the important finding that, quote, some Interpol member countries have used Interpol's databases and processes for activities of a political or other unlawful character, unquote. This is a classic example of transnational repression. The misuse of international law or organizations to spread the influence and activities of a politically repressive regime overseas. The act takes a strong stand against this this misuse, this abuse of Interpol. Among its other requirements, the act sets out standards for the use by the U.S. government of Interpol Red Notices in U.S. legal proceedings to ensure that repressive Red Notices do not affect our own legal processes here in the United States. Our distinguished guest today has played a leading role in the fight against transnational repression and against its reach into the United States. In September, in cooperation with Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland, he had introduced the TRAP Act into the Senate, saying that, quote, this legislation would ensure the United States remains at the forefront of defending the vulnerable against the long arm of state repression, unquote. Following his remarks, please remain seated while while we reset for a panel discussion on the TRAP Act. But now, please welcome to the podium the Honorable Senator Roger Wicker, co-chairman of the US Helsinki Commission, for his introductory remarks on the TRAP Act. Senator. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. you. It's great to be back at Heritage. And it's wonderful to have the opportunity to speak to this audience and the extended audience uh, about the TRAP Act and our efforts to prevent Interpol abuse. Since 1973, the Heritage Foundation has been one of Washington's most important voices for a strong national defense, traditional American values, and individual freedom. The United States is the world's superpower, but to lead we must be involved, engaged, and inspire others who support the values we hold dear. So thank you, uh, Dr. Broman, for this invitation to discuss a question that deals directly with these values and these issues. The topic today is how America can advance the rule of law, specifically how can we stop autocratic governments from abusing international organizations like Interpol to oppress political dissidents beyond their borders. Since its founding, the Heritage Foundation has sought to turn abstract principles like this into concrete policies, and that's what we hope to do with the TRAP Act. As co-chairman of the the U.S. Helsinki Commission, a congressional watchdog focused on human rights and democracy in Eurasia, I worked with my colleagues to introduce bipartisan, bicameral legislation to do just that. Ranking member Ben Cardin and I authored the Senate version of the Transnational Repression and Accountability and Prevention, or TRAP Act, of 2019. This bill takes this notion about what America should do and shows how it can be done in the case of Interpol. Interpol is a vital international organization. Our own government is one of 194 members that work daily with Interpol to bring criminals to justice and counter threats to security. But darker forces are also at play within the organization. As the Wall Street Journal's editorial board wrote in February, Interpol has a dictator problem. Russian dictator Vladimir Putin is a perfect example. Bill Browder, friend of Sergei Magnitsky, author of Red Notice, and an effective advocate for the Russian people, has been targeted by at least eight Interpol diffusions issued by Mr. Putin. Diffusions, like Interpol's famous red notices, are requests to detain individuals for possible extradition. They are very serious threats. Mr. Browder is a champion for transparency, accountability, and human dignity. He received the 2019 Lantos Human Rights Prize for his work as the father of Magnitsky sanctions, the most consequential enforcement mechanism of the modern human rights movement. Other prize winners included, include the Dalai Lama and Professor Ile Wiesel. So Mr. Browder is in good company. The barrage of Russian diffusions targeting Mr. Browder is an attempt to intimidate him, prevent him from traveling internationally, and in the worst case scenario, send him to a Russian prison. Although Interpol has repeatedly rejected the diffusions against Mr. Browder, recognizing them as politically motivated, Mr. Putin has not been deterred. The Kremlin faces no consequences for its serial abuses, and so continues these attacks. Interpol should impose costs for malign behavior. As Interpol's constitution clearly states it is, and I quote, strictly forbidden for the organization to undertake any intervention or activities of a political, military, religious, or racial character, unquote. Mr. Putin's targeting of Bill Browder is entirely political. It is a violation of Interpol's mandate for the prevention and suppression of ordinary crimes. That does not mean crimes as defined by the world's worst dictators but Russia feels so comfortable that it does more than repeat bad behaviors Mr. Putin has actually nominated a candidate for the Interpol president presidency earlier this year that position opened up um, only after the previous president was secretly arrested by his home country communist China Mr. Putin's candidate would have further corrupted the agency. Rewarding him with choosing the Interpol president would be like making Xi Jinping the NBA commissioner. I learned of this Russian candidacy at this year's Halifax Defense Conference. I joined with my fellow Helsinki commissioners, Gene Shaheen and Marco Rubio, as well as our colleague Senator Chris Coons, to denounce this move. At the 11th hour, We were successful in blocking Mr. Putin thanks to an outcry from Americans and our Western allies, but it was a close call. Mr. Browder is only one victim among many, and Russia is far from alone as an abuser. There are other high-profile cases. The NBA, and I've already mentioned it, has been in the news a lot lately for caving to foreign censorship. But this summer I met with one brave NBA player who is was not uh, caving to foreign censorship and who's taking a stand for freedom against repressive regimes. Ennis Kanter is a Turkish citizen, a player for the Boston Celtics. He courageously speaks out against President Erdogan's human rights abuses. Erdogan does not tolerate this kind of dissent, and he responded by canceling Mr. Cantor's passport and issuing a red notice against this this NBA basketball player. Mr. Cantor now lives in America under threat from a foreign government. The FBI has even had to install a panic button in his house. One recent example is instructive of how Interpol can be corrupted. Interpol's annual General Assembly meeting happened in Chile last week. There were elections and new policies were created. During that event, Interpol announced that Turkey will host the agency's General Assembly meeting in 2021. This decision is completely inappropriate. Erdogan's Turkey is a serial abuser of Interpol systems. Turkey has tried for years to target political dissidents with thousands of red notices. Mr. Kantor is just one victim among many. The vast majority of targets never make the headlines. The Helsinki Commission has received statements from Chinese, Turkish, Uzbek, and Tajik individuals who have been unjustly targeted by authoritarian regimes through Interpol. Most of these victims did not learn They were the subjects of politically motivated notices until it was too late. Interpol cannot tell victims, is prohibited from telling victims about these notices unless the requesting country consents. This is an affront to due process. After my remarks, we will hear from Sandra Grossman. She testified at a Helsinki Commission hearing last month about how even the United States is being used by foreign governments to intimidate people on our own soil. Red notices circulate in the US law enforcement databases. Our government does not think that a red notice is sufficient legal basis for an arrest. But US agencies, like Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, have improperly used red notices to prioritize foreign nationals for detention and deportation. Our country sometimes cancels visas because of red notices. ISIS decisions should not be subjected to the whims of authoritarians in Ankara, Beijing, Moscow, or any other capital. So, back to the TRAP Act. This bipartisan legislation aims to tackle Interpol abuses. It would lay out priorities for U.S. engagement with Interpol, encourage executive branch agencies to improve how they respond to politically motivated Interpol notices, codify strict limits on how Interpol communications can be used by U.S. officials against individuals in our own country, and require the State Department to report on trends in transnational repression in its annual human rights report, so that our government can understand better how to counter these abuses. The United States is a champion for good governance around the world. That includes within Interpol. My colleagues and I realize why this agency is important and why red notices should be used as tools to accomplish law enforcement and to accomplish the Interpol mission I have spoken to Interpol Secretary General Jürgen Stock. We spoke at the Munich Security Conference in February. He knows that Americans want to see Interpol do better. There has been progress, but there's still a a dire need for more accountability and reform. There should be consequences including, at the very least, the denial of leadership positions for countries who exploit Interpol. It should not become a forum to benefit dictators. Interpol was created to uphold the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document written after autocrats had slain tens of millions of people in World War II. The organization's principles are made clear in Article II of the Interpol Constitution. They are to affirm the dignity and inalienable rights of all people. The Heritage Foundation scholars and staff have a deep commitment to first principles. The TRAP Act would help make good on Interpol's promise by moving the agency closer to its intended purposes and closer to its founding documents. So thank you very much, Heritage Foundation, for having me here today. I look forward to working with all of you to make Interpol the force for good it was meant to be. Together we can ensure that international organizations work to promote America's interests and values. Thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you very much for remaining seated. Uh, We'll now continue with the panel portion of the program. I'll ask each of our panelists to make some introductory remarks about the problems the TRAP Act seeks to address. In deference to all three of our distinguished panelists, I'll keep my introductions of them extremely brief. Speaking first, we have Tom Firestone. He's partner at Baker and McKenzie, and formerly was acting chief of the law enforcement section at the US Embassy in Moscow. Speaking second, Sandra Grossman, partner at Grossman, Young, and Hammond, Testified in the U.S. Helsinki Commission hearing on the TRAP Act in September. And finally, speaking third, and in a dialogue with Ms. Grossman, we have Thomas K. Ragland, member in charge of Clark Hill's Washington, D.C. office, and formerly of the U.S. Justice Department. Following their remarks, we will have time for question and answer. Can I ask Tom Firestone to begin?
3: Yes, thank you very much. Um, thank you, Ted, just, not just for convening this, but for your great thought leadership on this issue. Before you started writing about this issue, I don't think anyone was really covering it in depth. So um, I thank you for bringing attention to this issue. Uh, as Ted mentioned, I was with the Department of Justice I was um, before I joined Baker McKenzie. I was at the embassy in Moscow. And I also worked as a federal prosecutor in uh, the Eastern District of New York. So I come at this from a criminal justice perspective. And what strikes me about Interpol is it's really one of the last areas of criminal justice without due process. You look at the consequences of a red notice for somebody. You can effectively stop somebody from traveling internationally. You can kill their business because nobody wants to do business with somebody who's got a red notice out there about them and it's publicly available. It's hard for people to open a bank account. Um, It can be hard for people to get a job. It can separate families forever because the red notice forever. Um, These kinds of consequences are ordinarily not imposed on an individual without meaningful due process protections. Um, Ordinarily, you'd be able to challenge these decisions, you'd be able to appeal them in some court of law where you could get a fair and impartial hearing and try to get these restrictions lifted. But in the Interpol realm, there's very little meaningful judicial review. There's no right to review in the national state courts. You can, of course, appeal to Interpol itself. But the proceedings there are not public. There are no published decisions. You don't know what, other, what evidence the other side is relying on. Most of the time, the people um, adjudicating these cases are not necessarily, I should say not always, not necessarily qualified lawyers. So what you have is a situation in which it is very easy for corrupt foreign governments to issue notices on people impose severe restrictions on them, have severe consequences um, for their lives, with no meaningful judicial review. Um, and there's been until now there's really been no attempt to address this in a meaningful way there has been some pro- um, Progress as senator wicker alluded to through the really excellent work of fair trials international working together with Interpol There have been some improvements, but there's a long way to go And I think that the trap act is really one of the most significant attempts um, Within the United States to address these problems. I just wanted to talk briefly about a few provisions of the act and why I think it's so important that it be supported um, First the Act would um, require the US government to use its efforts to enhance the due process protections around uh, red notices and diffusions which as I say are really at the heart of the um, at the heart of the problem it would um, require the US government to try to take measures to enhance the screening process um, to get Interpol to r- improve the screening process around red notices and diffusions um, it would also require special approval for the issuances of red notices and diffusions for countries countries that have shown to have violated Interpol's constitution in issuing red notices and diffusions previously. A second important aspect of the act relates to information gathering. Right now we don't have a lot of data. As I say, the decisions are not published. Interpol, and to a large extent, is still a black box. What I like about the act is it would require Interpol to issue an annual report. How many red notices were issued? At the request of what countries? How many complaints were there? How were they adjudicated? How many were denied? That would give us some sense of what's actually going on there. At the same time, it would also require the Department of Justice to basically prepare an interagency report on abuse by Interpol. So we'd have a second source of information. And third, it would require the State Department to address Interpol abuse in its annual country State Department uh, human rights reports. So that would give us a really solid data set so we know the extent and scope of the problem, and we can attack it intelligently. A third aspect I like about the bill that I like is the requirement to to be imposed on the US government to use its diplomatic powers. To try to protect people who are the subjects of um, unjustified abuse, Interpol notices, lodging démarches with foreign governments, engaging bilaterally and multilaterally to help people who have been the subject of these abuses. And one thing that I like in there, especially, is working with foreign immigration and security services to let them know that we think a particular notice is unjustified, which I think could really help people to, um, you know, alleviate some of the consequences. Because right now, again, there is no recourse, and you're really just at the mercy of foreign law enforcement finally um one uh another provision of the act would really require um interpol to improve the quality of the personnel or require the u.s government to work with interpol to improve the quality of the personnel there It's so a provision in there requiring them to fill vacancies with candidates who have demonstrated experience with the rule of law I want to find the person who's against that provision. <laughs> um, is there anything you know that could be more clear cut and more necessary? It would also uh, require the US government to oppose the appointment of candidates from countries with a demonstrated record of abuse, also something that seems to me quite un- uncontroversial. So I think this is a very good start. And if these provisions were implemented, I think that would go a long way to helping us understand the problem and address the most severe consequences of the problem. For that reason, I, um, I am honored to be here and uh, support speaking in favor of the act thank you Ted
4: thank
0: you so much Tom Sandra over to you
4: thanks so much Ted I want to thank you and the Heritage Foundation for this truly unique and important opportunity I did have the honor of testifying before the Helsinki Commission last month um, just as the trap act was being introduced in the house and it's just it's truly exciting to be part of a what is a bipartisan effort to pass such an important piece of legislation which I truly believe will help protect our justice system, as well as the human rights of persecuted persons who are seeking refuge in the United States. Um, Tom Raglan and I really envision this uh, as a little bit more of a conversation. We are both uh, immigration attorneys. And um, in our experience over the last few decades, we've come to witness firsthand how autocratic nations are using our justice system, including our law enforcement agencies and judges, to accomplish what they cannot accomplish through formal extradition proceedings. And basically, the way that that happens is they are utilizing red notices to manufacture immigration violations in the United States. So um, in the examples that Thomas will talk about, there is a foreign national that's here in lawful visa status. They're targeted by ICE solely because of the existence of a red notice. And you know, let's be clear: when uh, targeting, when the red notice is a legitimate one for lawful law enforcement purposes, you know, may not necessarily be a problem. But it's when the red notice is predominantly political in nature and persecutory that, in in our experience, it then becomes a springboard for really uh, serious human rights violations um, and violations of those individuals' rights. So in our experience, Interpol abuse affects people in many stages of the immigration process and people of all sorts of background and nationalities. Before we get to the examples, it's important for people to understand how Interpol and Red Notices function. Despite popular misconceptions, and uh, Ted has talked about this, this kind of Hollywood image of Interpol, there is no Interpol investigatory body. They do not go out and investigate these requests uh, from member countries. Interpol is merely a conduit for communicating information from member states. And one of the ways that they communicate are through its famous red notices. A red notice is not an international arrest warrant, as it says on Interpol's own website. Um, It's essentially a lookout notice or a request for law enforcement worldwide to locate and provisionally arrest a person pending extradition, surrender, or similar legal action. in the US, if there is an individual here that is the target of, the, of a red notice, there is clear Department of Justice guidance on um, how you know, the red notice is supposed to be effectuated or not. Under US law, uh, a, red notice does not, a red notice alone does not meet the probable cause standard under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution uh, for effectuating an arrest. And in fact, Interpol itself acknowledges on its, web, on its website that quote unquote, red notices are not reliable indicators of guilt. So uh, the way that it's supposed to work is once there's a red notice, there, there has to be a uh, the criminal division, Department of Justice Criminal Division, has to first make a determination if a valid extradition treaty exists between the United States and the requesting country for the specific crime involved. Then, if the subject can be extradited and after a diplomatic request for a provisional arrest is received from the requesting country, uh, then the facts are communicated to the U.S. Attorney's Office with jurisdiction and they will then obtain an arrest warrant requesting extradition. Unfortunately, that policy is not happening. Um, What's happening instead is that Immigration and Customs Enforcement is utilizing RED notices to target individuals for arrest and deportation. Uh, There's a, uh, you can Google this, there's a, a ICE program called Project RED, which is a coordinated effort between ICE and Interpol to arrest and detain individuals with RED notices. There's a lot of information on the website about how many foreign fugitives they've arrested in the United States um, and how many have led to actual deportation, but there's nothing on the website that even alludes to the fact that red notices can be challenged, that some of them are illegitimate, that they're not reliable indicators of guilt, and so you know, one begins to wonder, do these law enforcement agencies themselves understand what a red notice is and isn't? And so with that, I'll hand it over to Thomas to go through some of these examples. Uh,
5: thank you, Sandra. And, and uh, I also want to thank Ted for, uh, as Tom said, being a thought leader on this on these issues and having served um, uh, in some of my cases as a as an expert witness on your poll issues, which has been of critical importance uh, in those cases. Um, in most of the cases described, including the cases in which Sandra and I have been uh, personally involved as legal counsel, um, What happens is that ICE has targeted and arrested our clients for no other reason than the existence of a a red notice, and uh, in these cases, a politically motivated red notice. Um, As Sandra said, ICE's conduct in these cases is directly in conflict with uh, Department of Justice policy. And it arises really from a fundamental misunderstanding of what a red notice is. Most troubling US law enforcement officials uh, and perhaps it's unwittingly, uh, are doing the bidding of author- authoritarian regimes like Russia and China and Turkey and Venezuela um, and other countries who abuse the Interpol system. Compounding the problem is that many US immigration judges, which is uh, where non-citizens who are arrested by ICE appear to seek relief or and also to seek release from custody on, in bond, um, Immigration judges routinely deny release on bond, or they set extremely high bonds in cases involving red notices, again, based on the belief that a red notice is conclusive evidence of criminality. And they won't look behind it. I've had immigration judges say, look, he's charged with a crime in China, uh, and we've got a red notice. What more do I need to conclude that he's a threat to the community or he's a flight risk? too frequently, uh, this is how the immigration judges will uh, decide the fate of our clients. And this uncritical deference to red notice is not, is, is not only legally unjustified, but as Tom was mentioning, it creates further due process violations for already vulnerable immigrants. Let me cite a few examples. Uh, one of our clients was arrested by ICE literally as he walked out of his asylum interview. Um, The irony of such an arrest I don't think can be overstated. This is an individual who affirmatively sought asylum in the United States, uh, owing to a fear of persecution in Russia. Russia. On his way out of his asylum interview, he's arrested and detained by ICE, based solely on a red notice that was issued at the behest of the Putin regime. Uh, This particular client spent more than three months in ICE custody uh, before we successfully convinced an immigration judge uh, with Ted's help to order him released on a very high bond. Um, we subsequently filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and, and internal agency communications we obtained through that FOIA request revealed uh, ICE officials celebrating and congratulating one another on a very successful enforcement action. Um, we later filed, uh, and Saunders took the lead in this action, uh, a request for review with the Commission for the Control of Files, which found that Russia's request for the Red Notice was predominantly political. Interpol then deleted the red notice, but, of course, not before our client had suffered the consequences here in the U.S. In another Russian case, we had a client who was present in the U.S. on a valid visa, uh, and he was arrested outside his home by ICE in a targeted enforcement action uh, based on a politically motivated red notice. Now, because the notice itself is not a sufficient legal basis for an arrest in the United States, the immigration authorities uh, took, an, uh, took a, another approach— They unilaterally canceled his valid visa in order to arrest him and charge him as a visa overstay, all of this without his knowledge until they showed up at his front door. He was then repeatedly denied bond by successive immigration judges and on appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals. It was only after a successful challenge resulted in the red notice being rescinded and deleted by Interpol that he was released from custody, but then only again on a very high bond. This particular client spent more than two and a half years in ICE custody uh, solely as a result of this red notice. Finally, in two recent cases uh, that Sandra and I are involved in on the West Coast, our clients have been the subject of targeted enforcement actions by ICE based on red notices issued by China. Uh, again, ICE agents have arrested and detained these individuals who are both living in the US in lawful status. Uh, ICE attorneys in immigration court then argued that our clients were extreme flight risks who cannot be released on bond. And the judges, we've uh, appeared before, have either refused bond or only only set release on very high bond and 24-hour electronic monitoring. Both clients spent months in ICE custody as a result of these red notices. And these are just a few of the examples of the serious consequences when US immigration authorities, ICE agents, DHS attorneys, and immigration judges reflexively treat Interpol red notices as arrest warrants and as evidence of criminal behavior even when the notices are issued by authoritarian regimes that are known abusers of Interpol. US law enforcement officials simply should not be, and I think the senator made this point very well, should not be in the business of targeting and punishing political opponents of Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Recep Tayyip Erdogan. This is why the Trap Act is such an important piece of legislation.
4: If we, DO WE STILL HAVE ANOTHER COUPLE MINUTES? or PLEASE DO, done with PLEASE. Time? WE ALSO, I THOUGHT IT WOULD BE IMPORTANT TO MENTION ANOTHER EXAMPLE in, INVOLVING uh, A VENEZUELAN CITIZEN. Um, I, YOU KNOW, HAVE BEEN PRACTICING IMMIGRATION LAW FOR OVER 15 YEARS, BUT FROM ABOUT 2010 TO 2015, I WAS REALLY INCREDULOUS AT, at THE AMOUNT OF RED NOTICES THAT WERE BEING ISSUED BY INTERPOL AT THE BEHEST OF VENEZUELA which were so clearly on their face persecutory. Um, and one such example um, involved a actually a lawful permanent resident of the United States, um, a citizen of Venezuela, who is a, a world-renowned pediatric cardiologist. He's now, thank God, a US citizen. But um, he ran a private clinic in Caracas, where he dedicated himself to helping children with congenital heart defects. And he also had a foundation that helped these same children who didn't have the resources to pay for their treatment. Um, He obtained his green card in the United States through an extraordinary ability visa. And um, he became the victim of what's nothing else other than a ruthless political persecution campaign against private doctors and hospitals in Venezuela after a young patient of his died of an acute lung injury caused by a scorpion bite. Um, Though he was not the treating physician, he was involved in accepting the patient to the hospital and signing off on his initial treatment. Upon the unfortunate but unavoidable death of the child, my client's really 11th hour act of kindness became the Chavez regime's pretext to rile up public fervor against a perceived elitist medical establishment in Venezuela. And the death of this young boy turned into a national witch hunt against the treating physicians at this particular hospital, including my client. So there was a police report that was filed which led to criminal charges for the alleged crime of involuntary manslaughter. Through the pendency of the judicial proceedings, the the government of Venezuela, acting through the state-controlled media, engaged in what was a reprehensible public media campaign to discredit this doctor. And this was the case even though no court had ever found my client or his co-defendants guilty of the charge of involuntary manslaughter. After fighting the battle, or trying to fight the battle for more than eight years in Venezuela's notoriously corrupt courts, he fled to the United States, once here, He learned of a red notice against him. He was prohibited from traveling. He couldn't apply for citizenship. And most importantly, uh, he lived without the peace and security that he deserved after a, a long life of treating vulnerable children. Um, all because of his name and reputation were damaged and unfairly damaged in Venezuela. So it took us nearly a year to get the notice deleted before the Commission for the Control of Interpol's files, but much of the damage had been done. And I was commenting to Ted and Thomas on the way here. I was talking to him, and as early as, as recent as last year, you know, he traveled to Colombia where he was stopped at the airport, even though the red notice has been deleted since 2014, put in secondary inspection, delayed from his travel plans. So these, you know, these persecutory red notices really stay with people for a very long time, which is why the TRAP Act is more important now than ever.
0: Thank you. What I, what I think is so shocking, and I come at this as a non-attorney, I'm the only non-attorney on the panel, um, what I find so shocking about this is that There are people in jail in the United States today who have been imprisoned, and you can call it being detained. You can can use sort of the correct terminology. But there are people who have been imprisoned in the United States and are imprisoned in the United States today based solely on a red notice published by the Russian regime. And there are others who are imprisoned solely on the basis of a red notice published by the Chinese regime. Now, it is true that if you're in the United States as an American citizen, you are probably free from being imprisoned on the basis of a red notice. But I am shocked that the United States finds itself in the position of imprisoning people who arrive in the United States on lawful visas solely on the basis of red notices published by lawless regimes abroad. And that is what is really happening here. And that, to my mind, is the absolute heart of the TRAP Act. Uh, The TRAP Act is is much broader than that. It tries to take a look at the problem of transnational repression outside the United States. And I regard that as an extremely serious one and worthy of the TRAP Act's concern. But I'm even more concerned at the ability of foreign regimes to reach into the U.S. judicial system and imprison people in the United States based solely on a foreign and illegitimate say-so. That I find genuinely shocking. And it's something that I think conservatives and liberals alike should unite in denouncing. And I'm delighted that the TRAP Act has taken a genuinely bipartisan and, I think, a very thoughtful approach to this problem of interpol abuse. I'm going to ask the audience if there are any questions. I have a couple of questions uh, for the panel as well. uh, But I'll let the audience have the first crack. Uh, There are a couple of microphones that are potentially going around here. Um, if anyone in the audience has a question, please state your name, your affiliated organization, uh, if you have one. And um, please, as always, as I always say at these events, please keep your question in the form of a question. Anyone? Uh, sir, in the back.
2: Hello, my name is Akhshibar Hamilton. I just wanted to, uh,
5: if somebody can. Uh, Clear me. What's happening inside uh, Interpol? How did they go get so low? <laughs> <happening>? <laughs> that's
0: a that's a really good question. Um, I'll, I'll pass that. I have my own answers to that, but I'll I'll pass this down the line and and see if any of our panelists would like to take a crack at responding to that.
3: Well, I'll I'll start out. I don't know that they. So, I mean, I think the organization is a good one. It's set up for good purposes of facilitating cooperation among law enforcement throughout the world. We obviously need this kind of organization to fight terrorism, money laundering, drug trafficking, human trafficking, and all the other forms of sophisticated transnational organized crime. The problem is, like any good instrument of law enforcement, it can be abused, and it is vulnerable to abuse. Because there's so little review of the uh, The notices that go the requests from national law enforcement that go in there They don't have the resources. They're not set up to do a meaningful judicial review And I think at the point when it was set up, you know as, as everyone has been pointing It's in a mechanism for exchanging information. It just didn't really occur to people how easy it would be to abuse it abuse started Other regimes picked up on what certain abusive regimes were doing, and then it started snowballing. And now we're in a situation where the abuse has way outpaced the controls on the abuse. And that's why I think the Trap Act is so important.
5: Uh, I think, Tom, that's exactly right. I would just add my sense of this with respect to Interpol and also with respect to U.S. immigration authorities is it is a function of uh, law enforcement, um, and yeah. it, there's this there's an expression that if, uh, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Uh, I think from a law enforcement perspective, uh, if you view things as there are there are criminals who are sought for prosecution, and that's kind of your focus, then adjusting that and modifying it in the face of uh, what are obviously in many cases persecutory requests for extradition or detention uh, by author- authoritarian regimes, it takes a little bit of a, an ad- adjustment of the mindset. And you know the, 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 the targeting by ICE, for example, that I mentioned is not speculation on our part, but is uh, based on Information and documents that we've been able to obtain. In some cases, uh, they're presented as evidence in court proceedings. For example, uh, notices that describe targeted enforcement actions based on a red notice, with, with uh, you know, uh, clearly out there. Other documents that we often obtain through FOIA requests that reveal that that the red notice itself is the basis and the sole trigger for enforcement actions. So, and I'm not suggesting that this is being done in a malicious way but rather uh, that law enforcement views somebody who uh, they have a document that says, here's an individual who's charged with a crime from whichever country. And an international organization, not China or Russia, but Interpol, which is a respected organization, has now issued what we take to be an international arrest warrant. And we're going to honor that because we're law enforcement. So again, this is also why I think the TRAP Act in having actual legislation, as opposed to just advocacy is so important. And when you have somebody like Senator Wicker and the other uh, senators and congresspeople who are sponsoring this legislation saying, we're putting our imprimatur on this, and we've considered this, and we studied it, and we believe this is important, I think that that's hopefully will go a long way toward addressing that abuse.
4: And just just very briefly, I mean, I absolutely agree with, with what everyone has said. I also think, to answer your question, I think these autograt- autocratic nations have gotten really good at uh, kind of formulating the criminal charges in the red notice so that you know they appear to be ordinary law crimes you know so Thomas and I represent an individual who spent I don't know four months now in a prison uh, in California and you know he's charged with with basically a, a financial crime um, and so it's it's very difficult to unpack these crimes and to show that they are predominantly political in nature and on their face they look like they would pass the standards that the folks uh in in interpol that are supposedly vetting the red notices you know they look these crimes look like they're passable so i think that's part of the problem i also think interpol needs to do a much better job of of in that in that Primary vetting process. They need to take into account political context. They need to, especially at the Commission for the Control of Interpol's Files, which is the body that then reviews requests um, by individuals to, to, you know, arguing that their red notices are political or illegitimate. They need to have people there that are uh, well versed in principles of human rights and international law. So. Tom, you wanted to.
3: Yeah, just a brief. I just wanted to reiterate. I mean, I spent. 14 years with the Department of Justice, focusing on transnational organized crime. So nobody is more sensitive to the need for a mechanism like Interpol, an exchange of information to combat transnational organized crime than I. But I recognize, especially having been a prosecutor, that people are fallible. The power of the state is enormous. And that's why, in the US, you can't indict somebody federally without going to a grand jury. You can't get a search warrant without getting approval by a judge. There's a right of habeas corpus. There are various rights of appeals. All of which are designed to protect the individual against mistakes, sometimes malice, sometimes just you know mistake on the good faith mistake on the part of law enforcement at the international level through interpol we don 't have any of the same equivalent protections, and there 's this gap, and that 's where uh, that 's where the whole problem is and so I think that You know, as we've been saying, the system, the international system, needs to keep up with with the reality. And what we've got, because of Interpol, exactly as Thomas was saying, you've got a warrant issued by a foreign government. We don't know what went into that, who drafted it, what protections were around it. Filtered through Interpol, it comes to somebody in ICE, and it looks very good. Oh, it's Interpol, a distinguished international organization. It comes from foreign law enforcement. And you've got U.S. law enforcement acting on the basis of warrants that are not vetted in the same way that domestic warrants would be vetted. And that's our whole problem.
0: I'll just add, I, I agree with everything the panelists have said. I'll just add one more comment on to what is really actually a very penetrating question. Um, the Interpol's, one of Interpol's founding assumptions is that all of its member states are equal. Uh, and this is this is an assumption that Interpol doesn't have on its own uh, you can take a look at the United Nations. Every member, of the Interpol, every member of the UN General Assembly gets one vote. The UN General Assembly works on the same basis, fundamentally, that Interpol works on. Every nation is taken to be equal in its capacity, uh, in its sovereignty, in its judicial abilities, in the functioning of its police system, in its basic law-abidingness, and its willingness to uphold Interpol's rules. And it is admittedly very difficult to think how an international organization could be based fundamentally on a division between sheep and goats. How how would you run a two-tier or a three- or a four-tier international organization by saying that some members of the international organization are equal and others are less equal? Well, no one is going to join such an organization. So Interpol has been deeply trapped by its its founding assumption – that all of its member states are sovereign, which is true, all of them are equal in their sovereignty, which is also true, and all of them are therefore equal in their law-abidingness, which is not true. And that is the fundamental problem. It's why I persist in believing that if you want to solve this problem at the Interpol level, Interpol needs to take the authority, which it already possesses, and start expelling member nations from Interpol for persistent malabuse of the Interpol system. I think if Interpol did that, it would create a deterrent effect that would prevent future or discourage future abuse. But Interpol, with its its guiding assumptions, is very unwilling, extremely unwilling, to take the steps of expelling anyone. So I I think that guiding assumption is a fundamental reason why you have Interpol abuse. I wish it were as simple as Interpol being corrupted or Interpol being malevolent or Interpol having bad intentions. I don't think those things are true. I think the problem is much deeper and much more subtle than that. Uh, Would someone else in the audience like to pose a question? Um, You you got your hand up first, ma'am, so I'll call on you.
1: Hi, I'm Rebecca Schaefer. I'm with an organization called Fair Trials International. We've been working on reform of Interpol's processes since 2013 um, with some success. Um, you'll know practitioners that a lot of the internal mechanisms to vet and, um, to challenge abusive red are, are much more robust than they used to be, but there's a lot of work to be done. There's now sort of standing committees within Interpol, um, which I know the U.S. has supported, and I think this legislation will sort of enable them to continue to support, um, these reform mechanisms within Interpol, um. I'm just trying to get my head around what this is gonna look like. I'm asking practitioners here um in practice the trap I mean this is a thing of beauty, this legislation. It's really it's really wonderful. It takes a victim centered approach and a transparency approach and a political approach that I think is really sophisticated. Um I'm just thinking about the sort of practical impacts in immigration cases, because there is, isn't there already some communication between, for example, Customs and Border Protection or other agencies within DHS and state about these red notices. And it seems to me that there's often a bit of back and forth where state is saying, "Eh, we're not sure, or that's a non-extraditable case or something like that. And yet agencies within DHS are moving forward. So this seems to be necessary sort of teeth um, to, to force DHS to, to stop acting in those cases. But I'm just wondering, what, what is that going to look like in cases? And how will you know about that as a practitioner, about the communication between state and DHS and ensure that that has happened? And will they just stop mentioning immigration judges and um, and agents um, that, they, that they're that they relying on the red notice? Or what do you imagine that looking like? It's a
0: really good question. What, what is the criteria for success and what does success actually look like? On the ground in the kind of cases that you deal with. Uh,
5: well, I mean, I'll address that first. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for the question. Um, what I would envision would be if this became legislation, uh, then it has to be communicated, right? And it's 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 communication and education. And I think when I go to court on these types of cases, I feel like a lot of what I'm doing and trying not to do in too pedantic a way is to educate uh, a judge uh, and and oftentimes also the government lawyer that. Um, the red nose shouldn't just be accepted at face value. And I'm not expecting you know, uh, judges and, and others to turn on a dime on that, but, but just to look a little bit critically, I think if we had this legislation and we had the force of law, then you could incorporate uh, these types of precautions and protections in immigration judge training. I mean, they've hired hundreds of immigration judges in the past few years. You have all these brand-new judges, some of whom don't even come from an immigration background, many of whom come from a military background or some other background, Uh, when they receive their initial training, part of it should be, okay, you've got this case that comes before you and the individual is subject to an Interpol Red Notice. What are the steps you should take and what should you be informed about? What is US law and what is is the government policy on approaching those? The same kind of training would be uh, important, I think, for DHS attorneys. It would be important for ICE agents and CBP agents. Uh, who, deal with, uh, who deal with these issues, um, you know, that sort of training and education I think would go a long way toward um, maybe it wouldn't eliminate the abuse, but I think it would go a long way toward uh, reducing it.
4: I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Thomas, that it, it, it's an issue of training. It's us constantly having to explain uh, to judges what a red notice is and isn't. And then having them usually defer to the red notice or the government, anyways. Um, so I think I think training um, training will be important. I also think uh, interagency agency communication. So you know, for the most vulnerable cases, which I think are 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 folks like the one Thomas mentioned, our our Russian client who, you know, was leaving his asylum interview. There should be a communication between. USCIS and ICE about uh, particularly vulnerable populations like uh, prospective asylees do not pick up, you know, potential for illegitimate red notice. So I think increasing that uh, that communication. I also think if there's an individual who's a subject of a red notice who's challenged that red notice, that there should be some kind of communication between you know, the U.S. Interpol, NCB, and ICE, ERO, USCIS, that this red notice is in the process of being challenged, which would then hopefully stop some kind of enforcement action against that person. Um, So I, I think that there are specific provisions in there which will go a long way to address these concerns in the immigration system. Right now, there's nothing, by the way. This is, I mean, that's the other challenge that we have is that No one seems to understand how this system works, and it's just a absolute, it's conclusive evidence of criminality.
5: Well, and I think also, I mean, to to not put it all on the government side, I think it's also uh, practitioners. And there's a reason why Sandra and I have so many of these cases is because there's just a limited population of attorneys, uh, practicing immigration attorneys, who've dealt with these issues at all. And so often what happens um, if, you know, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with what a red notice is, if you haven't read Bill Browder's book, and if you're, you haven't uh, dealt with it before, and you're confronted in immigration court suddenly in a bond hearing with a red notice for your client, charging them with uh, fraud in a very large amount, which is one of the favorite Russian uh, uh, charges, um, it's hard to defend against that unless you can articulate, as the panelists have, what is a red notice, what isn't a red notice, what do you know, what are the what are the countries that are known as abusers of the Interpol system? And so we also need to, and we've been making this effort, and, and Ted's writing and others have contributed a lot toward educating practitioners uh, in this area, but we need to do more of that.
0: And I would add the work of Fair Trials International, so thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Um, I, would, I would just point to Section uh, 6B of the TRAP Act, and I won't read it all out because it's very, very long. But essentially, it says that unless, if a, if a red notice or a diffusion comes in from Interpol, and it comes in from a country that we do not have a valid extradition treaty with, that that red notice or diffusion should not be used as a basis for denial of services or canceling visas, you know, et cetera. Um, that I, I, you know, so many of the cases that uh, the attorneys on this this panel and I have dealt with really fall into that category: individuals coming from a country that we don't have a valid extradition treaty with, but the red notice is used as a basis for denying some kind of some kind of government service or benefit, uh, to to use the technical terminology. So I think that section alone wouldn't solve every problem i agree entirely there is a huge educational issue here i would just point the finger partly at hollywood you know the, the hollywood image of the interpol agent has done really significant damage to the ability of the u.s system to deal intelligently with red notices because everyone thinks they know what they are because they've seen them on the big screen and that's just not true Uh, Leadership like Senator Wickers, leadership like his Senate and his House colleagues, and and the work of attorneys like the ones on this panel, I think, are the the best mechanism for educating a wide spectrum of the American legal profession writ large, that what everyone knows about red notices just ain't so. We've got time for, for one more question, and I believe that there was a question here? No? Okay, yeah.
1: My name's Christina, I'm with Grossman, Young & Hammond. Um, You kind of touched on my question in your last answer, but um, I guess I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how something like Project RED could even exist, given um, the Department of Justice's understanding of what a RED notice is. (laughs) Um, Is there any part of this that you think the US is intentionally complicit in, or is it really just entirely based on misunderstanding or miseducation? (laughs)
0: yeah you're almost baiting us to say that there's a little bit of complicity there
5: Um, I'm I'm gonna let the the, let the panelists I I, I guess uh, what I would say is again it it comes down to you know you have this you have this within the Department of Homeland Security itself uh, that you have a specific service function with US citizenship and immigration service they adjudicate applications for benefits and then you have a, a different component, immigration and customs enforcement, which is explicitly an enforcement function. Um, and you know the, the concerning things that I've seen, even outside the Interpol context, has uh, in some of these cases involve ICE collaborating with um, law enforcement counterparts in some of these countries. In Russia, for example, uh, and direct communications between law enforcement agencies. Now, of course. We don't want it, there's nothing wrong with communication between law enforcement agencies, but there should be, you know, collaboration with U.K. authorities and Canadian authorities I think should be different in kind from collaboration with Russian authorities and Chinese authorities. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that that's an issue in ICE. Certainly we've seen it be an issue in some of our cases, and it goes to, again, this, this question of whether um, it's the enforcement – Priority has overtaken every other consideration.
4: And that's where, where you ended is, is really where I was going to start, which is the fact is that the enforcement priorities um, against immigrant populations in this country have changed over the last few years. Um, it used to be uh, that there, there was a hierarchy of who was a priority for deportation. Um, with 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 you know criminal aliens at the very top um, now there's a much broader understanding on the part of the um, in, in enforcement community of who um, is a priority for deportation and where resources should be spent and I think that in general there is a much more uh, the the atmosphere for enforcement actions is much more tolerant and that, I think has contributed to to efforts um, to to apprehend and, and you know and detain people with red notices although Project red I think was started in 2010 yeah. Um, so, you know, we can't entirely, you know, we can't we can't blame it entirely on the current atmosphere um, I think there is this it goes back to this kind of miseducation on a red notice that that I that I think it, it just hasn't there hasn't been the effort Within the enforcement community to educate them on what we've been talking about at this panel. So it's a mix
3: Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think there's deliberate malicious complicity, but as I said before, I think what it is is like look, this is a necessary instrument. The red notices exploded after nine eleven when all the focus was on enforcement and connecting the dots and international law enforcement cooperation, but that kind of, you know, uh, effort obviously lends itself to abuse, which is, which is what we've got here. And it's, to me, it's like any other system of accusations. There are true accusations and false accusations, which is why we vet them very carefully before state action is taken on them. And, of course, you know, if somebody's got a history of making false accusations, they get treated differently than somebody who doesn't. And yeah. this is what the, the Trap Act would just, to me, just bring common sense to this system, which is, it seems to me, so obvious and so needed. It's hard to imagine how someone could be against any of this. I, I think
0: I would really go back to what, what Sandra said, uh, that if, even if your priority is only removing foreign criminals from the United States and you're under pressure to do that, red notices make it very easy, illegitimately easy, but very easy because all you have to do is scan the list of red notices, figure out who is in the United States, and bang, you have a quote-unquote dangerous foreign criminal who you can arrest. And then you have, you have moved forward in meeting your quota for arrests for the, the week, the month, or the year. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would call that malicious. I would call that bureaucracies doing what bureaucracies are going to do and making life easy for themselves. But the effect is still the same whether or not you can describe it accurately as malicious or not. The effect is still that people enter the United States legally on valid visas – for one reason or another, fall foul politically of a foreign regime and find themselves in jail in the United States. And I'm less interested in whether or not the US law enforcement community is doing it maliciously than I am in trying to remedy the outcome, which is that we should not be relying without good proof on the authority of red notices as documents to deprive people of benefits, to cancel their visas, or worse, them in jail Uh, that i think is a dangerous intrusion of foreign authority into the american legal system and something that we should all be trying to oppose so with that i think we've come to the end of our time today thank you very much uh, for coming along to the panel i think the panelists might be able to hang around for a few minutes afterwards if there are other questions you want to raise privately but for now let me just thank you for coming to this panel on assessing the potential of the trap act to prevent Interpol abuse. Thank you again.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you. I didn't, didn't get
0: to shake your hand as you came in. So.